of Alexis de Tocqueville's most important observation about American society was its spontaneous, self-generated flourishing. Left to themselves and without prompting from government, the American people formed churches, social and fraternal organizations, neighborhood groups, and of course, families. It is this propensity for joining and building that has made American exceptionalism truly exceptional. After World War II, Americans went on a community building binge, founding and joining religious institutions and clubs and community organizations at an astonishing rate. As we move through the second half of the 20th century, however, scholars and pundits have pointed to an accelerating decay in Americans' neighborliness and propensity for joining civic organizations. Church attendance is down, social organizations are dissolving, and two-parent families are in decline. What can the data on American attitudes toward community tell us about why this is happening? Today, I'm pleased to welcome Ryan Streeter and Dan Cox to discuss the state of American communities. Ryan is a senior fellow and director of domestic policy studies at AEI. He studies topics of civil society, community, localism, and religion. Dan Cox is the senior fellow in polling and public opinion at AEI and the director of the Survey Center on American Life. He specializes in politics, youth culture, identity, and attitudes toward religion. We'll discuss highlights from their fall American Community Survey, which can be found on the AEI website. We'll also discuss their personal journeys in studying civil society and the most important factors in building a happy, civically engaged life. Ryan Streeter and Daniel Cox, thank you so much for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Today, we are going to have a conversation about the American Community Survey, um, which is, uh, I suppose you can both claim some kind of parentage over this project here at AEI, and we're going to get into the specifics of that. We want to go through sort of your, each of you do your top five uh, things that you've learned out of conducting this survey, which has ranged across quite a few different topics. Before we do that, I wanted to ask you each to just kind of talk a little bit about yourselves, your career interests, to where you are today as uh, leaders inside a think tank. So, Ryan, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to to be on Hardly Working and and um, to be talking about the things we're talking about today. I'm a Midwestern guy from Indiana, as you said, childhood in Chicago, still kind of identify with the heartland. Uh, in that part of the country, even though I haven't lived most of my professional life there. Yeah, I grew up in a in a middle class home, you, you'd probably lower middle class. My dad was a, a pastor. And so we were surrounded by, you know, just a kind of a rich network of community. If I needed, if anything broke or if <laughs> a bone was broken or we needed a nurse, there was usually someone in the church community that was there. And so from a very early age, without even knowing it, I had an exposure to things like social capital and strong community and these sorts of things, which would become professional interests, you know, later on. Um, I went down an academic path and um, had the goal of basically being a professor and um, teaching political philosophy. That was really kind of my goal. And I was captivated early on in college and then in graduate school by some of the great moral thinkers, primarily the Greek thinkers and the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. These were two kind of tracks of interest. Um, Kind of always knew that I'd I'd focus more on, on more modern writings, but I cared enough about the Greeks to learn ancient Greek and to read them in the original language. And, you know, I was deep into it. That, that was going to be my, my path, but it was really through, you know, studying 
the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, many things about America that we inherited from that in our own moral, legal, and political framework that got me kind of interested in the connection between those ideas and really application in kind of a federalist society where you have um, these different different layers of sovereignty from the local community up through the state and up to the, the federal government. And just happened to land my first job with Steve Goldsmith, who was a mayor of Indianapolis in the 1990s when there were lots of domestic um, and urban reforms going on. And so I, I basically finished my my doctorate while I was was doing policy writing by by day, and and I would say it was kind of the confluence of of these various actors in my life, Scottish Enlightenment thinkers like Adam Smith and David Hume, and their understanding of how moral habits are formed, what makes communities strong. Uh, there's a lot more to say there. My my dissertation advisor, who was also an intellectual mentor, Don Livingston, who's a very noted Hume scholar. We're all very important while at the same time working for someone like Steve Goldsmith in a vibrant kind of urban environment. And it was very competitive back then with Rudy Giuliani in New York and Steve in Indianapolis and Ed Rendell was a mayor of Philadelphia and Susan Golding was in San Diego. John Norcris was in Milwaukee. There was lots of stuff going on, welfare reform, school vouchers, community policing, all these sorts of, of things. And I found that I just had a real knack for these policy questions, but thinking about them, you know, more, more deeply. And, and so, you know, we're, you know, working with someone like Steve, um, watching someone like Jack Kemp try to reform public housing and talking about grassroots empowerment at the urban level. I became really interested in how these, these questions that had been more historical, philosophical and academic about moral formation were actually very real today. And so I'd say a thread, you know, kind of when you fast forward to today, I've done a lot of work on urban policy, a lot of work on what makes cities function. Um, how social safety nets and how upward mobility should actually be structured and should work mostly in metropolitan and urban environments. And a thread running through all of those themes has been the really importance of kind of non-governmental actors, civil society, the role of communities, habit-forming institutions like congregations and voluntary associations have always been of interest to me. And so we'll get into some of this more a little bit later in our discussion. But as we've you know hatched the survey work here at AEI, you know I and Dan and others um, share, even though our backgrounds are very different, we share these these interests in you know what's going on in America a few layers below political attitudes, which everyone seems to be obsessed with right now. And what are the kinds of things that actually make communities succeed, or what are the common things that communities that are failing have you know to to, to be addressed? And so it's those it's those issues that have kind of animated my 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 public work for for years, but they kind of go back to those earlier days um, in graduate school and maybe even a little bit before that. So I want to back up just for a second. Uh, how, how did this uh, pastor's son from the little town in Indiana ever get it into his head that a PhD was something that somebody did? I got captivated early on by the role that ideas play in shaping institutions and shaping the world that we all live in. And mm. it sort of started to happen in college. Um, you know, my my pastor father was someone who who um, read fairly widely um, and encouraged the life of the mind, something he never I think maybe later realized it was something he maybe would have liked to have done and never did and encouraged me to mm. to pursue that. And, you know, I just got kind of lucky. I, I threw out some applications without really knowing what I was, was going to do. I'd love to say that when I was graduating from college, like all of these smart research assistants we have at AI today who actually kind of know what they're planning to do over the next five to 10 years, I, I really wasn't sure. I knew that I, um, I was really interested in these ideas, in these this the kind of the long run of ideas, how, you know, we, we 
take for granted that we live in a society that has, that's built on a federalist model, for instance, where did that come from? You know, I got mm. very interested mm-hmm. in questions mm-hmm. like that. It didn't just fall out of the sky. Somebody was thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a combination of people that I bumped into, a few professors I had in college. It's really hard for me to pinpoint one person. There were just these common themes that came up in a number of mm-hmm. classes that I took and people that I admired and respected that, that I realized that I was living in the midst of institutions that I took for granted that didn't always used to be there. Um, and that I was essentially the beneficiary of some really good ideas and also perhaps some bad ideas. And, and I didn't really know what to do with that. I thought the history of ideas was what I wanted to do. And I looked mm. for graduate programs that focused on that. That was how I ended up at Emory University back then. The, the program I was in has changed a bit since then, but it was really focused on that kind of an approach to, to the study of, of history and the study of philosophy and ideas. That's so it was, a gradual, it was a gradual process, but just one where I was fortunate enough to have an, enough people around me that made me realize that that there's there's a lot more to this world that we live in than, than what we're uh, familiar with and what we're comfortable to. And the, and the goal is to get the fish outside of the fishbowl and try to understand mm-hmm. the water that you're swimming in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was, yeah, it was unusual. And, and particularly for the town I grew up in, Indiana, most people stayed a lot closer to home when they graduated. I ended up um, kind of hitting the road, mainly because of where I got accepted into graduate school. And one thing after another uh, led me all over the place, including um, to Washington, D.C. twice now. Yeah. And London and all over the place. It's been a yeah, we've, remarkable yeah, we've, journey. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people like us that focus on policy, we spend our you know good bulk of our careers in D.C., but we've just been fortunate enough to have a lot of uh, things to say yes to and opportunities to do this kind of work in different cities. And so, yeah, we've been able to call London and Austin home and a stint back in Indianapolis, Atlanta, Chicago, all kinds of great, great places. The downside is I have a 23 and a 20 year old who really can't answer the question where they're from. <laughs> like I can yeah. Um, but there's a whole bunch of benefits that outweigh that negative as well, I have to say. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, and for anybody who's listening out there who's wondering what's possible for them in their lives, I think this is a really great story. Um, there's a lot possible in life. Um, and uh, it's so don't don't limit yourself, I think, is one of the messages there. Dan, your turn. Tell us about. Daniel Cox and where he came from, why he's doing this. And then maybe uh, I'll give Brian a chance to weigh on this too, but, you know, sort of your perspective on where this, this idea for the American community survey came from. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, my trajectory and and Ryan's are quite different. We we ended, you know, working together and working on a lot of the same stuff, but uh, the, the, our paths, I think were very divergent other than actually my grandfather was a minister. Uh, in Southern Illinois. So, um, and my, my mom uh, grew up a uh, preacher's kid. And so like, that was her sort of unique experience. I, I grew up uh, not, not in religion, but um, really intensely interested in it, uh, but more sort of politically, sociologically. And it wasn't really any, I think, particular person uh, that set me on this course, really. I, I think it was more an experience in, in 2004, when I was a starving graduate student and wanted to make a little extra money, I signed up to work as an, an analyst for this project that this pollster was working on. And it was an hourly gig uh, for just this one project, but it, it completely altered my career trajectory. Because at the time, my only exposure to polling was this is something that campaign folks did. They did it for elections and, and maybe to understand political issues more broadly, but the survey that I ended up working on was understanding generational changes in religious identity and practice. And this is back in 2004 when this was not a mainstream thing that people were interested in. So it it was a ton of fun to work on. And it was really, you know, 
the beginning for me to sort of see that there's a lot wider world that is available to us in, in public opinion research, right? That I think a lot of us take for granted now, but, but, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was, it was really different environment. A lot of the pollsters that we rely on now and look at um, didn't even exist. So uh, the whole experience, I was, I was really blown away that you could ask questions. You could ask them about their religious beliefs and behaviors. Now you could ask them. And they would answer. Right. They would would answer, (laughs) hopefully, honestly. Uh, And, and how they spend their time and the things that they actually worry, you know, worry about. And that was for me, a door opening into the kind of work that I wanted to do, right? Rigorous empirical research on topics that are not usually subject to it. Uh, I, I had, you know, I took one, graduate level uh, political philosophy course, and I hated it. I don't think I have uh, aptitude or, or much interest in it. I admire people that do, the many scholars at AI that do have groundings and interest in that. Um, but but my, I think, you know, interests lie elsewhere. And I was really, you know, beyond the religion stuff, I think I was really interested in relationship dynamics too, and, and uh, understanding social sources of influence on, on, on behavior and attitudes, you know, and using things like social network analysis to get there, um, you know, wanting to ask questions about the things that really matter to people. And I, I think one of the things that, that when I'm writing a bit about this, that I think we have moved away from, and I think one of the real problems we have is we have this, I think, rising and in, in deep insecure, uh, in curiosity about each other, right? We, we don't, we we're very good at telling the world how we feel and what we think, but I think we're, we're less good at, at extracting that information from people. So that to me is, I, I think, something that I, I've always wanted the survey work to be about. Um, and I think- so, so are you saying we're becoming a nation of narcissists? Is that the, the bottom I, line? I think people have already written books on this, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think even, even a lot of pollsters would, would, would tell you, and it's certainly been true for me in the past, that, that we'll sometimes conduct surveys on topics or ask questions when we have a pretty good idea about how people are going to respond. Uh, and there's reasons for doing this work, but I, you know, I find it fairly unfulfilling. I would say that my time at the Pew Research Center was, was certainly formative. I, I learned about the practice of public opinion research there. You know, in grad school, we learned a lot about theory, but we didn't spend a lot of time actually you know, in the trenches doing it. You know, back in the day when we used to do telephone uh, polling at Pew, one of the great things is actually you got to listen to how people answered the question so that the question that you wrote the day before, you had to listen to someone stumble over it and sort of say, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand what you're saying. Right. And it's, it's a, it's sort of some real humility there in, in what you're doing. Uh, so I think that that was a really valuable experience, you know, working with uh, people like Mike Dimmick, who's now the president, uh, Andy Coa, uh, Scott Keeter, real, real legends in the field. And, there's really, you know, no better place to cut your teeth. So, yeah, I, I think that's sort of was the start. I went on to, to co-found PRI, which is doing more uh, focused work on religion. And then, you know, because I have, you know, kind of entrepreneurial instincts, like I, I'm always wanting to do, create and, uh, you know, be kind of imaginative. And, and uh, I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know if we do. I don't know yeah. if we define that acronym. P R R I public religion research Institute. Yeah. Okay. That, I did that for 10 years. And then, um, thanks to Carlin Bowman, I, I, you know, came over to AI, which we can get into or, or whatever. I don't know what we want to talk about next. Well, I mean, it, so that thanks for bringing up Carlin. Cause she has been the public opinion guru at AEI for decades. 
but AEI hasn't really ever done its prior to this project. If, if my understanding is AEI hadn't really ever done its own original research. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part, it, it's done um, when it comes to survey work. It had fielded a couple of kind of one off surveys on some specific issues, but not as a not as an ongoing body of work. Right. And and so this was your primarily I mean, Ryan, you were the one who said, I, I think I want to add this to the domestic policy portfolio. Yeah. At AEI. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been at AEI for a little over five years. And so when I came, it was back when Arthur Brooks was president. And when he pulled me kicking and screaming away from Austin, Texas, <laughs> which took some doing. Um, if you spent any time there, you can see why. Uh, back to Washington, D.C. Uh, no, I was excited to be able to come back to AI. Think Tank that I'd known and respected for a long time, scholars on whom I had relied and built friendships. I mean, I've always kind of, when I haven't been in Washington, always considered AI to be kind of my home away from home. But one thing I mentioned, Arthur, I said, if I'm going to do this, I, I really think I'd like to be able to... Um, recover some of the really great work that AEI has done over the years on things like community, on things like civil society, on things like the institutions that sort of democratic life depends on, a lot of which was theoretical, um, not all of it, but a good bit of it. But when you think about the arc of the careers of people like uh, James Q. Wilson, um, his book, The Moral Sense, was profoundly influential on me when I was in graduate school, when it, when it came out. You think of Irving Kristol and Michael Novak and these 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 big sort of names of AI's history who didn't focus on policy prescriptions per se. They weren't writing about how to make healthcare more affordable and more uh, available, or you know how to what the right tax rates should be. Although they got into those things sometimes, they were interested in these kind of deeper questions of institutional life. And as I and Arthur was open to that. And I was thinking about doing that through a combination of who we hired to work on these things. And we've done some of that. But also, if, if we could be involved in generating some new and original data that could be analyzed in some way, what would that look like? And as we looked at where we thought the opportunities were, um, um, survey work was at the front of that list, just because we realized that some of this great work by Bob Putnam and others on social capital was getting quite dated. Um, a lot of these questions weren't really being asked anymore. These questions about um, how frequently people go to a place that's outside of work in the home and what that place is like, and do they volunteer? Um, do they spend time with people? All, the, all these different things that you kind of need to ask to get a picture of what's going on in the ground in American civic and social life, just um, people kind of moved on. Everyone was obsessed with, with political attitudes. And so that's really what the origin of it was. And we started out by seeking some, some funding. We were fortunate to develop a relationship with the Knight Foundation, who's generally supported this, and then some other foundations and, and, and some other resources that we have at AI to put, put this together. So we, that's kind of where that was, those, that was the rationale for it. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then you mentioned uh, Dan, and you have both mentioned Carlin. Carlin was kind enough to introduce Dan and me to each other. And then after we'd been at this for about a, a year, Dan came over and has really built up the survey center into into what it is. It's so typical of Carlin too, you know, of like not, not defending her territory as, you know, the AEI guru, but really this generosity of spirit to say we can do more. That's good history to sort of bring us up to the present. Dan, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I mean, in terms of like the, the mesh between your, you know, the, the bridge, I guess, into AEI. Yeah, no, I so I, I had been sort of looking around for something new to do and uh and had known Carlin for years and, and really admired her. You know, I I wouldn't say that she was a mentor, but she was certainly someone I looked to as a model for doing this type of work, you know, someone who was dedicated 
doing public opinion work for an, her entire career and, and done it, you know, really, really well. Um, so I, again, I was, I was familiar as, as, as much as that goes, but I don't think, you know, AI was at first an obvious choice, you know, part of the, the culture in the legacy polling outlets is that you, you know, you're presenting the opinions of others. Your job is to, to analyze, describe and report. You, you kind of keep yourself out of that story you keep your personal opinions and about the results to yourself. The idea is, is that, you know, if you offer your, your personal take on something, you can undermine the confidence that people have. Um, whereas, whereas you're working with a, you're working with a bunch of scholars whose job it is right, right. to go some, and deliver opinions. Um, right. I mean, there's, there's some, there's some natural tension there and yeah. I'll never forget, like in my first interview, uh, with Arthur, uh, you know, one of the things he said is like, uh, you know, you need to take a position to put yourself out there. And my first reaction was, no, 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 no. I was, you know, I was, it was drilled into me that that's not, that's not what you do. And, you know, some of this reticence stemmed from, um, of just how, what was happening uh, on social media, right. And encourages us to, to make everything about ourselves, you know, what we think, how we feel and put it out there, whether people want to hear about it or not. And I, I think it's, it's, it's anathema to public polling, which at its root is, is asking questions and learning from, from the replies. So for much of my, my polling career, my instincts has been, you know, let the, let the findings speak for themselves. Uh, and I think that in respect, it was probably a little bit of a naive perspective. And maybe this is because I'm, you know, a middle child and we're used to being overlooked that I, that I gravitated toward this approach <laughs> to writing about public opinion. But I, I think there's a real limitation to it, right? When it comes to keeping yourself out of your analysis, it's more difficult to talk about why things are happening or why we should care about it, why it matters without inserting your own perspective and experience and values into that conversation. Like, why are you even doing work on community and civil society, right? Like, why is that even important? Like, so there's part of it. And ultimately, I, I came around to Arthur's point of view, and I, I don't think we need to pretend to be robots or, you know, uh, be invisible to do this kind of work. But I do think there's, again, there's natural tension there that um, I'm still kind of working through. And, but it's something I've become much more, more comfortable doing. That's terrific. So we're going to now bridge into uh, hearing from each of you about your top five insights. I mean, I will say from my standpoint, uh, I mean, I've always been a consumer of polling information and all other kinds of research, but uh, or survey information, and all, all other kinds of research. And what I, what I appreciate about the projects that you and I have done together is the way that they have added a lot of context to the numbers you know, really getting down below sort of the initial response, yay, nay, or I really feel strongly about this, but really being able to then compare that across other questions, figure, try to figure out, get, get a more of a focus about why, why do people feel uh, and think the way that they do. So let's start out and Ryan, you can have first crack here. We'll count down, right? So this is your fifth most important insight. What, what's your fifth most important insight? Oh, we're starting with five. I'm going to have to turn my notes upside down here. So. <laughs> as a um, special little twist just to keep yeah, things that's interesting. Right. You know, okay. keep, keeping me on my toes here. The fun thing about this exercise is actually just coming up with five because mm -hmm. um, there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff in the data that's turned up in these surveys. So I've um, just like I have a hard time picking a favorite movie. I have maybe five favorite movies. I'll, you know, I, I picked the best five I, I could, you know, the, the, the ones that were top of mind, but there's a lot more there. Okay. So maybe we shouldn't rank them. This is just 
five super interesting things that I've learned uh, out of find the survey. Trying to rank them, but um, they, they, they'll change on a day-by-day basis depending on what I'm talking about. So um, one of the things that uh, I found really interesting in some of the work that we've done is given the public attention to questions of loneliness and anxiety and these sorts of things that we're experiencing is, is this, that when, if you want to promote happiness in your life, and if you want to avoid loneliness, it's great to be social and sociable as a person. Um, but it's even better to be civic. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean, when we find, we find ways of grouping people together and when we ask them a number of questions about how frequently they speak to their friends and how often they spend time with people. And we also ask them a battery of questions by which you can measure people's social isolation. And you can kind of mix all that together. And, and in one of our analyses, we, we, we created sort of four categories of people, those who were highly civic, that is, they volunteer a lot. They actually report going and, and participating in voluntary associations or a congregation or what have you. Um, and they also spend a lot of time with their friends. Um, and then we look at those who aren't either of those things or those. And there are people who are highly civic, but not very social. Um, they, they participate a lot in voluntary life, but they don't really hang out with their friends very much. And then a lot of people hang out with friends, but don't really volunteer. Right. So you can kind of look at all of those things together. And it is interesting to, to see. And, and again, some of this confirms what people might consider to just be common sense and conventional wisdom. But it's interesting to see this in the data that when, as you would expect, people who are not very social and people who are not very civic are the most lonely. Um, and there are also people that are more the most likely to say that they're not feeling that happy today um, when you ask them questions about their subjective well-being. And then when you see people who are social, but not civic, or people who are civic, but not social, they, they're roughly lonely or not. They're, they're, they're much less lonely than the other crowd. But they're, you know, they're, they're close. Um, but when you look at the people who are social and civic, it's the, the addition of civic to the social that kind of puts things, you know, on steroids or puts them, puts them really high. So it's this, these people who do spend a lot of time with others, but they also are engaged in their community, just kind of repeatedly show up as those people who are more likely to pitch in when asked to help. They're more likely to give a high estimation of the place where they live. They're, they're uh, much more likely to say, I'm not really very lonely ever. Um, and, and the like. Uh, one one kind of fun sub finding there um, when it comes to volunteerism, because we, you know, and thanks to Dan, we've been able to ask a really interesting set of questions to look at informal social capital. That is just the the, the experience of being with others, not planned necessarily, um, or, or I shouldn't say not formal, where you're showing up at a set time to, to volunteer at a, at a soup kitchen or whatever, but just getting together with friends or spending time with others. But then we also look at formal volunteers, and we found out that among young adults, you know, people 18 to 35 um, as you would expect, people that volunteer regularly uh, on, you know, in any one of the lists of like 11 voluntary kind of opportunities, whether it's a veterans group or a sports club or a church or a local charity, they're going to be l- less lonely than the national average. Um, with the exception of one, which is political volunteering, it's when people just volunteer only in politics, they tend to be be lonelier than the national average. And I'm not sure if that's because politics is just hollowing out our souls or it's attracting lonely people or what the what the deal is there. But um, volunteerism politically isn't the same thing as volunteering in other ways. So anyway, that that civic social nexus is really important. The second one that I mentioned, we've done a lot of work on amenities, how close people are to cafes, parks, libraries, restaurants, um, uh, think when you're not at home and you're not at work, where are you? And I like to, to say that 
what we've been studying is the neglected mediating structure in, in this one. Um, there is a book that AI published years ago called To Empower People by um, Peter Berger and Richard John Newhouse, which um, for those of us who care about mediating structures and the role of civil society in life is kind of an, you know, it's an important text. And they identified families, voluntary associations, congregations, and neighborhoods as four really important institutions that sort of stand between the state and the individual. It's where democratic duties are discharged. It's where moral habits are, are formed and, and so on. And they first wrote this in the 70s and then again in the 80s, republished it at AEI. And since that time, there's been a ton of research on the first three, families, voluntary associations, and religious congregations in terms of their social capital effects and what the, the role that they play in communities, but not neighborhoods as much. And so as we've looked at the role of neighborhoods and how close we've grouped people together um, by how closely they are to these things, a walking, you know, a short walk or a short drive or a, a you know, medium range drive and found that, that there are certain civil society effects to proximity. Um, and again, we, we, we're not going to use the very strong language of, of causation here. We're just looking at relationships, but we, you know, we are seeing that when you have people that live in high amenity areas and in, in urban areas or suburban areas, you know, they're going to be like more than twice as likely to, to say that people in their community are very willing to help. Um, they're going to be more trusting of others. They are more likely to trust their local government, you know, than people that live in low amenity neighborhoods, let's say in the same city. And, um, and people that live in high amenity areas are going to be more likely to walk around their neighborhoods and report frequenting a, a, a place uh, regularly, recognizing people there and also to feel safer at night. So there, there is this just positive benefit to living in kind of amenity rich areas um, that's worth that we think is, is worth not just reporting on, but actually we've raised a whole bunch of questions that are worth um, studying even more. So I think that that nation, that, that notion of neighborhood structure is really important. Um, the third one that I would say has really been interesting in our work is how I, it's enabled us to puncture some conventional wisdom about the working class in America. The, we've been talking about the working class now nonstop for you know five, six, seven years, and they became front and center after the 2016 election. Um, and there's a common narrative that has developed around the working class that they're particularly they're economically alienated and anxious. Uh, there was this this Trump appeal was you know in large part kind of an economic appeal, or they're or on the left they're, they 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 are attracted to Bernie Sanders because of 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 economics mostly or only. And there's a common narrative that the American dream is dead for the working class and that they're pessimistic about it. And we have a definition of the working class that we developed with Brookings a couple of years ago. We had a working group focused on the working class. And so you can read about it. I won't go through it here, but it's, a, I think, a pretty good definition of, of who you know, qualifies as working class in America and who doesn't. And when we look at those respondents in our surveys, we see just a, a different picture emerges. And I'm, I've been especially interested in how that picture shows up on the political right, since that during, you know, we were doing a lot of this during the Trump administration um, the last couple of years. And, you know, we found that working class Americans are basically right at the national average when it comes to the American dream, for instance, whether they've achieved it or whether they're on their way to achieving it. Working class minorities, you know, working class Black and Hispanic Americans are more optimistic about their financial future than more affluent white college educated uh, people. They actually, you know, felt like, you know, in, in, you know, some of these questions we even asked during the pandemic, but the, the sense that the future was going to get better is, is, is more, it, it's more frequent uh, among working class people than, than gets reported. And when it comes to some culture war questions, like who's in control of the culture, it's, it's much more likely to be affluent white Republicans who, are, who believe that, say, liberals control everything than, say, working class um, white Republicans. They're not, they're not as caught up in those things. And they're actually 
you, know, you could even say that Trump voters with a college degree are more elitist than, I'm sorry, more anti-elitist than the working class on this. So, so I think that 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 that's important, and I won't go into all the numbers here, but I think we've been able to see that this notion of economic alienation and pessimism just doesn't really show up in the survey data. They are less trusting. Do they distrust elites? Yes, they do. Do they do they think that they're being overlooked by people on in coastal elite cities? Of course, they they do. But that doesn't necessarily translate into support for kind of a a very strong, heavy-handed working class policy agenda. In fact, they're they're more likely than more highly educated, more affluent people to believe that anyone can build and start. Um, and grow a business in America. Again, you know, the, the sense of kind of you know, standard traditional American fare about what, you know, economic optimism should look like is much more common in the working class than, than we've been led to believe. It's so interesting. And it's, it's a point that uh, Dan makes to me every time we do a project together, uh, which is, Dan, I, I need certain answers out of this data. <laughs> mm. And Dan saying it's it can be kind of hard on your priors. Uh, <laughs> that has certainly turned out to be true. So the popular picture, if it's not exactly wrong, or the 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 common wisdom uh, isn't exactly wrong, it's, it's often very incomplete. Um when it when it comes to what gets reported, you know, it's like we've got a narrative here that we have to we have to fill that out with a bunch of facts. So we'll pull these out and, and we won't get the others. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, OK, so, Dan, why don't you give us a few of yours and then we'll, uh, we'll give Ryan a chance to collect himself and come back to him in a minute. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to riff on a, you know, a few things that, that Ryan said, too, but but talk about them in a, a little bit of a different way. So the, the first off, the, the optimism stuff, I think that Ryan totally hit it directly on. We, the, one of the really interesting things that I'm seeing it are increasing racial divides in terms of optimism, right? That um, we, in fact, we have a new survey coming out in the next couple, couple of weeks that we ask questions just like, how optimistic are you about the, the country's future? And we see that um, white Americans are far less optimistic than black, Hispanic, or, or Asian, Asian Americans. The other thing that, that I think is really interesting is that when you ask about um, their sort of their personal sense of how they're doing and, and the future, again, you see, you know, similar divides, but also when it comes to, to education, right, like the value of education, uh, you see that the white Americans are far uh, less likely to, to say that a college education is worth the cost. And, and again, majorities of black, Hispanic, Asian Americans are saying, yes, it is. Uh, and so again, the, that that is somewhat new. We haven't seen those types of divisions before. And I think you know, whenever we're, we talk about um, the working class, we need to to recognize that that there's these racial divisions among the working class, just as they are among um, uh, uh, college educated folks as well. And the other the other thing the thing that's really interesting to me when we think about optimism and pessimism is that uh, you know I I think Ryan would agree that a lot of the pessimism has been a bit overstated and, and it, it depends a lot how you're asking things not a lot how you're framing things. So we had this really interesting question where we asked, you know, just generally, are you feeling good about the direction of the country or, or bad? And then we did a follow-up question about if you felt bad, like did this happen recently or, you know, have things been going off the rails for a long time and the same thing, if you felt good and, and overwhelmingly, if you think uh, things are not going in a, in a good direction, you think it's happened in the last couple of years. 
Whereas if you think that things are going well, you, you think it's happened over sort of the longer, uh, a longer time horizon. So again, when you kind of frame things around progress, Americans actually tend to feel pretty good about where the country is. And when you sort of think about, well, when you think about how things are going right this instant, uh, it allows people to focus on like, oh, I couldn't, you know, couldn't get milk because DC shut down or, you know, with a, you know, quarter inch of snow, whatever. I mean, whatever the, the immediate thing that is, is bothering you or you saw on Twitter. And so I think like that's, you know, when we talk about optimism and pessimism, I think we really need to be, to be careful and clear what we're, we're talking about, because often we're talking about two distinctly different things. I heard Matt Continetti, another one of our colleagues at AEI, talking about this very thing. Like pessimism can often be attached to, for instance, who's is your guy or gal, as the case may be, president of the United States or not. You know, that may have a huge effect on whether you are answering optimistically or pessimistically. You know, there, there are these you called it a thermostat. Uh, that yeah, um, opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally right. It's totally right. And the, and the data all shows us, right? So um, after Joe Biden was elected, you saw Republican confidence on all Friday things fall and Democrats went up. Um, you see, you see it uh, measures of like how people think about the economy and, and, but even like longer things like on like culture, right? Like right. A, a single election can uh, change how you think about where the culture is, but, but switching gears to, to talking about the community stuff. One of the things that I think uh, really interesting in, in terms of the data that we we collected in the in that community survey is this increase, increasing uh, divide by education. Uh, we know in the in the 2016 and in the 2020 election, education was a, a much more important variable. In fact, some of the early voting models and polls were off because they weren't weighting by education. And I think it's just become a a, a much more important dividing line. Uh, when it comes to sociability, civic engagement, political engagement, you know, people with a four-year college education um, are, are just have much higher levels of engagement across across all those domains. But it's not just that; it's about sociability and, and friendship as well. So we asked questions about how many friends you had, and college-educated Americans have more close friends than than those without. And we don't know, right? This is, as Ryan said earlier, this is associational. We we, we can't say this is truly causal. Um, but you know, there are strong correlations there. Uh, and, and so I, I think we we're sort of in search of a mechanism, but there's a couple that, that, uh, to my mind spring out. Can, First of can, all, yeah. Oh, go, uh, no, I just uh, on this education question, I'd really like to invite both of you to, if you've got any ideas on this, why would whites be so down on four-year degrees? Is that come up in the data? I think some of it is about, you know, the, the kind of blowback against what's happening in a, on a lot of college campuses, right? You're seeing confidence in, in higher education plummet, particularly uh, uh, folks on sort of center-right. And I think some of it's about rhetoric too, that people are saying, saying, you know, you don't need a college degree, right? You can, you can do things, um, right? You have tech folks who are saying, hey, just get, get you know, get a degree or get a, a certificate in yeah. programming, right? Like you can, you can make tons of money. Uh, and I'm sure it works for some people, but but I think that there there has been this declining trust, I think, and and I think that um, that is undermining a lot of the confidence that associated with the the sort of increasing cost of college, right? Like that people are taking out greater loans, and people are are reading about horror stories, you know, in regards to like I'm you know paying off my loans for thirty years or whatever. So I think that that's all in the water. I don't know if any of that is is causal. Yeah. I don't know, Ryan, if you have a th any thoughts on that. 
No, I, I would agree with what Dan said. And I, I think that what's been interesting to watch over the last um, four plus years is the way in which just discussions about um, colleges kind of among what you might say establishment elites, people that control media narratives, people that advise political leaders or elected officials or those officials themselves have gone from being perhaps um, critical of and worried about just the cost of college to the overall campus environment, and you know, and particularly on the, the center right. So people that used to not have a whole lot of interest in what we would call culture wars, you know, when the culture wars had to do with same-sex marriage or abortion or those, those kind of traditional ones, but have moved to kind of cancel culture in the campus environment. Uh, a lot of people have gotten super animated about this. And so people with megaphones actually are weighing in on this. You know, pe- people that didn't used to care about the old culture war stuff are talking about this all the time on their radio shows, on their podcasts, on their social media. And so, yeah, I would say the consumer class of that worry and that anxiety, and I'm not saying that this anxiety or worry is unfounded. I'm just saying that it's it's become pretty pretty pervasive. And so there's a, there's a lot of pessimism right now about the value of a four-year degree. Of course, anecdotally, we can all probably think of people that we know who are publicly criticizing four-year degrees who wouldn't dream of anything else for their kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've I've run into that on many occasions uh, when when people say or write things about uh, about don't bother with a four-year degree. I always ask, is that the advice you're giving to your children? And the answer is always no. So, um, and I think from a workforce standpoint and a sort of economic outcome standpoint, if you finish your degree, big if, but if you finish your degree, it's really valuable um, over lifetime earnings. There's just no comparison to high school or even community college. So you don't go to college if you don't want to go to college. But if you do think you're able to do it, it's it's a, still a great investment, um, even if you have to take out some loans to do it. Dan, let's get back to you. Go ahead with your your next item. Yes. I don't know if the college stuff, I started off with optimism, but I think college stuff, I think, was sort of the second. And I wanted to get into the piece of why I think that's happening, right? And one of the reasons is we've seen a decline, uh, a disproportionate decline among the non-college folks in terms of membership in religious organizations. So, you know, overall, every, you know, it's a it's a national decline in terms of, of membership and affiliation, but uh, the non-college folks are uh, disaffiliating and, and not being involved in much higher rates. One of the things that we kind of know from social capital work, uh, Putnam and others, is that that particularly for the non-college folks, um, you know, unions, uh, civic uh, or, orgs, and religion were disproportionately important. Like there, there are other avenues for people with with means, uh, whether it's you know, country club, golf clubs, you know, Orange Theory, right? They, there's you know, joining a yoga studio, right? There, there are if you have means, there are other ways for you to find and connect socially. For those without, like, you know, a lot of these sort of institutions like religion were really, really, they played an outsized role. And so when then people sort of fell away from religion, it became, um, you know, incredibly problematic for them economically and socially. And so I think that's part of what's going on, that we're seeing this really, really dramatic decline over, over like the last 10, 15 years. This is not, this is not happening over 30 years. This is happening pretty fairly recently. Um, so I think that's uh, a big part of, of what's happening there. And, and there's a, um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about sort of the negative aspect, but I think there's, there's some really bright points too, right? If you look at Americans who belong to the, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, uh, typically referred to as Mormons, 
um, their uh, community involvement is off the charts. And uh, their, you know, their engagement with people who are members of their, their faith uh, happen uh, a lot more frequently, both in services and out, outside religious services. And because of that, they are on all any kind of scale you can give in sort of life satisfaction, um, sociability, you know, how often you see your neighbors there, they, they beat every other member of any other religion by like miles. Uh, and so I think it's a really interesting model sort of like community-based uh, religion that, you know, I, I would be really interested to see if this is transferable across denominations, across cultures, uh, you know, because they've, they've done this so effectively. Yeah, uh, I, keep, I keep asking, you know, like, is Utah, has Utah become the Scandinavia of America? You know, like, it's so, it's so different and it's so different for very, specific reasons uh you know the predominant um you know the social unity around religion mm -hmm. it keeps coming up as wow they really do a good job with this in utah uh and you know uh maybe we need more people from utah to like spread out over the country and uh and help support you know these these social reforms not that that's going to happen but i i i i really you know, Utah, you cannot swing a social policy stick around here without hitting it. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the solidarity of the uh, of the community. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of it's 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 cultural, right? Like so there's an expectation that you will go help your neighbor or, you know, you'll you'll take extra time out of your day to do something right for someone you you barely know, but who may attend your attend your church. And so I think like that that might be a little bit difficult to export, right? Like you would need that kind of ethos, uh, mm -hmm. but it's it's remarkably effective. I've I've interviewed a whole uh, a host of folks for some of the writing that I've done on it, and they sort of say to, to one like, yeah, it's it's really demanding, mm -hmm. um, but the upside is that right, like you know that someone's going to be there for you because of of you know you were there for someone like that's yeah. this uh, sort of really really a communitarian uh, approach to things. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be related to why um, uh, why Salt Lake City of all the major metros has the best upward mobility rates for people born in the lowest quintile, right? Mm. Their, mm. their social services system is interwoven with their their government programs and the and the church's presence, and so there's a there's a culture of helping people on their way. You started out on on a low rung, and not surprisingly, they they are absolutely, and I think without question, are probably thirty years ahead. Of the rest of the country in terms of integrating their government systems to better serve poor people you know like they they're just way way out ahead uh, on this and that just that's a function of leadership and culture uh that's hard to get away from so my my last thing i, don't, I think we're on the last one now is um that and this is this is shorter uh but we we asked right we asked about questions about third places where you spend time that's not work or home and a lot of people have such a place. And in the most recent survey, we asked, well, what was this place? Right? Was it a coffee shop? Was it a gym? Was it a library, community center, a public park? And uh, I was really surprised, Ryan, I don't know if you were as well, that coffee shop was really like one of the highest on the, on the list. It was coffee shop and parks, I think, were the, the top two um, responses. And um, our colleague, Sam Abrams, wrote about this uh, about how you know he is such a, a passionate supporter defender of public libraries as am i 
but only like one or two people, like one or two percent of, of respondents said that the library was their third place. And I think that, I mean, that's really kind of damning, right? Like, again, I, I have young kids. I love public libraries, but it's not a place I would go to, to meet people or socialize or right. Like it, it, it's just I go get books and my kids run around a little bit and, you know, they get some. <laughs> angry looks from the patrons that are there we go then we leave uh and i think it's like it's it was coffee shops right and 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 uh parks is where people were going and relying on and i think that was just really really telling well everything's a library now with uh with internet enabled devices right you can access books information all you know uh it's like you're carrying a library around in your pocket maybe that's part of the reason that they don't get used as much as they used to. Okay, Ryan, your turn. Give us your last two. Yeah. So, okay. So the fourth one I would say is that what emerges from our data is that there's a very large, what I've come to refer to as the ideological heartland in America. And this is not a geographic place. It's a, it's a way of looking at the world that shows up that gets underreported in our media and underrepresented in our politics, I think. And, you know, we started this discussion by um, saying that, you know, we wanted to dig below political attitudes, but it doesn't mean we're not interested in people's political attitudes. And when we ask people, you know, whether they're very progressive or very conservative or somewhat, you know, or, or, or neither. What's been interesting to see is how people who very strongly identify with one pole or the other, left or right, um, who also say that their politics is important to them or to their personal identity really do sound like in their responses to other questions, much of what we see on cable news and much of what we see on social media and much of what we see on or here on radio programs. So for, let me give you a couple of examples. So for instance, people who are very, you know, very self-aware on the left are, are more likely to be animated by changing the names of statues and schools than they are increasing affordable housing um, or expanding affirmative action. Like that's really important. It's not that those other issues aren't important to them. It's that right now renaming statues right. is more important. And then on, on the right, people who are, you know, self-identify as very conservative um, are more likely than progressives to believe that politics is a zero-sum game and to have you know much more confidence in politics in Washington than conservatives have traditionally had where they they've really come to to see politics as the as the 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 tip of the spear in the culture wars that they need to be engaged in which is sort of a new thing but then when you look at the other like almost two thirds of the the country who kind of lean one way or the other it's really interesting how things like crime taxes you know <laughs> bread and butter issues are at the top of their list for the things that they're most worried about in their local community I call these people domestic realists. You know, they're not they, they may have very different views on culture war issues um, from each other, but they don't want to go to war uh, over those things. And, and, and one thing that I pointed out in some of what I've written on this is that this isn't a milquetoast middle. Sometimes we, we, we talk about this kind of the centrists as being kind of the people who just don't care as much about issues. They actually care about these issues. They, they wish that politicians would focus on things like crime and taxes and and, 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 all, and, and these things that don't get talked about as much as key like issues. So I think that that the there's something, there are some lessons here for political parties and political leadership in this that certainly aren't being being taken for a whole bunch of other other incentives. And the last one I'll do very quickly is that um, the narrative about young people, young adults being um, especially lonely is an interesting topic in the survey data. This one's gotten you know a lot of, of attention over the years. 
And, you know, one thing that we've found is, is that people in their twenties are always the loneliest segment of the population uh, in every generation. You just are, you're lonely. You, you graduated from school, you're off trying, you know, you're trying to you know, get a job. You don't know very many people. You haven't been in a community very long. Um, but when you look at, um, let's say people in their twenties or early thirties, and you compare them, you know, in terms of their, their reported self-isolation, loneliness, the way they respond to those questions, you compare them to baby boomers and people who are older are just less lonely. They've lived around, they got longer friends. They've been in their community a long time. They just, you know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why you're less lonely when you're older. Um, and you look at um, young adults who are involved in a religious um, congregation, have lived in their neighborhood for a little while, are involved in, in a, a charitable organization and who get married. When you add all those things up, they're, they're, average loneliness rates are well below the national average and and even lower than the average baby boomer. Um, so saying yes to opportunities in your community, saying yes to another person, saying yes to uh, these types of community engagement if you're a young adult is probably the surest way to end up in a place where you're not feeling um, isolated and, and lonely. And so I think that's you know, you, you mentioned something like this earlier uh, in the discussion, Brent, but saying yes, when it comes to advice for young people, whether you're in college or in your 20s, that's actually one of my favorite bits of advice is just say yes, those two two words. Mm, mm. Obviously, that's connected. The caveats are that's connected to the character and integrity of the person doing the asking. <laughs> or the institution. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or the institution. But saying yes to involvement, saying yes when people ask you to pitch in in your community, saying saying yes to a whole range of things that you hadn't tried before. But from what you learn from others, seem like a good thing to do. That, that people almost always say they're happy that they said yes, rather than than the other way around. And I think at the community level, one of the most immediate benefits are these these effects we see on people's sense of loneliness and belonging. So, one of the reasons that um, I think we see that that uh, in our friendship show that we connected over the over the summer was that it wasn't enough to have one or two good friends or even a best friend that the, the more friends you had, the less lonely you felt, but you, you needed, you know, four five, six, uh, at least, uh, like we looked at the people who had zero friend, close friends or one or two. And there really was not much difference in terms of how often they felt lonely. It was only once you started getting to like five and six that you felt the way. And I think that's exactly, uh, as, as Ryan was saying, because like, then you're starting to, you know, get people to ask you to do things. You're, you feel like you're part of groups. You're more likely to be, you know, dragged into various, uh, civic or other activities that you might not otherwise, uh, you know, have, have participated in. Yeah. You might, you might get persuaded or forced into playing a, on a softball team or something, which I would <laughs> run the other direction from. But I, I think this is a really good place for us to leave off this conversation saying yes engaging in mutuality, uh, reciprocity, uh, service uh, to people. You can, if you think about it just in, the, in terms of what you're giving, it can feel like a tax. It can feel like you know, a, a burden uh, on your life. The reality is by saying yes, you get back a whole lot more than you're putting in. So I really appreciate the work that both of you are doing on the American community survey. I'm learning a ton out of your work and your partnership in developing the surveys that we're doing. It's just been incredibly helpful and um, looking forward to um, what comes next for the, for the survey. So uh, real quick, I know everybody's got to go. Uh, where can people follow you if they want to see more about your work? They can head to the AmericanSurveyCenter.org website. Um, 
you know, follow me at Decox Polls, uh, Twitter. At Decox Polls is your Twitter handle. Ryan? I am at Streeter Ryan on Twitter, but I have hardly been active on Twitter for the last year because Twitter is Twitter and I've, I'm almost <laughs> done with it. Um, the, the best way to find me is if you just Google AEI.org and just type in my name, Ryan Streeter, after it, it'll pull up my scholar page at the top of the list. And then you can, you can see what I'm wrong And then there is a ton of good stuff there to read. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks Brent. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.